Hi Ventures, welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is an academic and another guest I came across through my friend and friend of the pod, Nama Cates' excellent incel podcast. Dr. Joe Whittaker is not an incel, he is a lecturer in cyber threats at Swansea University's Cyber Threats Research Centre housed in their law department. His PhD analysed the online behaviours of Islamic State terrorists in the US from the years 2012-2018, conducted as a joint degree with Swansea University and Leiden University. He has also researched how social media platforms' recommendation systems promote and amplify extreme far-right content, as well as publishing on topics such as counter-narratives and extremist video games. I've had three perspectives on incels from Nama, William Costello and former incel Matt Henry and I wanted to get Joe's expertise on the podcast to discuss what the risk is from incels to wider society, if there is any at all, whether they should be treated like a terrorist group like some would argue and the other subjects he covers in the counter-terrorism space through a mental health lens. For Joe's mental health, similar to my discussions with conflict journalists, we talk about the mental health impact that viewing extreme and harrowing content for research and work has had on him, what support he's had in managing this, and other researchers like him who've had to do this as well. So this is how my conversation with Dr. Joe Whittaker went. Dr. Joe Whitaker, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you for letting me check in with you. You are another guest I've nicked off Nama's excellent podcast, Incel. Like I said in the intro, you are actually not an incel. I had to make sure that was clear in the intro. So uh, how are you, mate? How are you getting on? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, just coming to the end of a long, grueling academic term. So enjoying getting back to a bit of research. Oh, you're on that academic mindset. It's like half term, end of term. Oh, you're one of those people. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With your expert perspective, mate, I hope I've now covered the issue of incels pretty comprehensively and factually. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Fantastic, absolutely. Let's start your podcast, Joe, by talking about your academic journey. So firstly, tell me in the listeners how and why you got into it, what inspired you and the journey to where you are today. Well, I took quite a strange path to academia to be honest. I went to university at 18 but dropped out after one semester and then ended up spending the next five or so years playing poker for a living uh, which was uh, yeah quite an unusual way of thinking about it but actually taught me a very strange and useful set of life skills. After those five years I only really went back to university because if you cast your mind back to um when the coalition government got into power and they decided to triple tuition fees. So I was kind of, I'd always thought of going back to university at one point and all of a sudden it was kind of a 30K decision or something like that. So I thought oh, I'd better go back to university. So I went to do politics and philosophy at the University of Hull and basically just stayed at university ever since. It's been, uh, it's been about 10 years since then and just all the way through undergraduate and then straight onto a master's and then basically straight onto a PhD after that. 
You mentioned there about poker and the skill set you learned. Can you just be more specific about what skills you learned? You know, did it help you in funding applications, perhaps, or anything like that, or how to uh, deal with uh, how to deal with the uh, the upper echelons of university management? <laughs> well, to some extent, yeah. But I, I think really it's a very specific, critical mindset of thinking quantitatively and mathematically about problems and trying to make as much of an inference as possible on the basis of very little information which is basically what you're doing in every hand of poker anyway you know there's it's a game of incomplete information and you've got to try and navigate your way to the end of it and to be quite frank and apologies for swearing but it gives you a very good bullshit detector over when people are (laughs) making claims or trying to say things that aren't necessarily backed up by the facts and the gambling world is very good at that because a lot of people are happy to talk about a lot of things, but the gambling world is very much a put up or shut up situation. And you can kind of gives you a very keen sense of uh, knowing kind of when people are at it. I want to move on to the subject of counterterrorism now, which is the reason we're speaking to today. And you said you fell into this subject by accident, really, in 2014, 2015, when you did your PhD on online radicalization specifically. So why was that year important for your journey into this subject? And tell me about that PhD as well. Mm. Oh, that, I'll, I'll go one step further back than that, which, which was so it was my master's, which was in international politics, which was in that year, started in 2014, ended in 2015. And that was the summer that ISIS kind of made its big expansion across the Middle East. They, 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 they captured, you know, Iraqi cities like Mosul and, uh, and Syrian cities like Raqqa. And again, if you cast your minds back, it's what, nine years ago. It was the start of the 10 o'clock news program, you know, every night, all summer and, and things like that. And as a result, my master's in international politics was very interested in it as well. I think there were two different courses that were very much related to terrorism. And it kind of really developed a keen eye from that. And then as a result of that, leaving that master's in 2015, I saw kind of an advert placed to do a PhD at Swansea University on the topic of online radicalization. And the context of that PhD was people are looking at all of this terrible content online and either upping and going to Syria or Iraq or being convinced to commit acts of terrorism in their home countries. Although I'm quite sceptical about this, and I'm sure we'll get onto this in a bit, there was this straight line drawn between engaging with terrorist content online and then going and doing something terrorist later on. And that really was the whole premise for, for the PhD as it was advertised at the time. And it really interested me. Before we talk about incels, I want to explore the relationship between terrorism and mental health, because in order for someone to be enticed into extremism and act upon it as well to carry out terrorist acts, something's obviously gone seriously wrong. And there are multiple factors that are at play here and or could be combining to be at play here. So tell me about this relationship from your research. Yeah, so it's fair to say it is a long and quite tortured history of research into terrorism and mental health. So about 50 years ago, when people started to think about this, there was this quite lazy assumption that it was just all about psychopaths. And to do something like it was this kind of weird circular logic that to do something like this, you must be a psychopath. And psychopaths do things like this, and it kind of creates this self-referential circle. However, when people started to really research into it and look and see if terrorists had diagnosable mental health conditions, we see a pretty nuanced kind of position starting to come up. I think to fairly summarise the situation, when it comes to clinically diagnosable mental health conditions, probably fair to say that people that are acting 
as a part of terrorist groups, kind of larger groups or, or small to medium sized cells, tend to suffer from mental health disorders at about the same rate as the general population. So there really isn't very much there. So my own PhD research, for example, found about, which built a database of about 200 ISIS terrorists that were acting in America, found that as a whole cohort, about a quarter of them had a diagnosable mental health condition. So, and that is roughly in line with people in, in society in general. However, the one quite important caveat is it does seem that people that act and execute their plots alone lone actors do seem to suffer from a specific set of disorders of quite a substantially higher prevalence than the general public. However, that does seem to be a quite a, a specific set of disorders. So we see things, so both my research and research undertaken by this really good team at University College London that look into this, tends to find that it's disorders like schizophrenia and quite often uh, depression. Mm as well as potentially autism spectrum disorder as well, that are very highly mm. overrepresented when it comes to lone actors specifically. So again, it's, I guess the first takeaway is it's not really reasonable to talk about all terrorists and mental health. It's, it seems to only really be lone actors. And then even when it is lone actors, it tends to be a very specific set of conditions, not just any kind of mental health problems. When we hear about groups or terrorist groups not just lone wolves although they might claim to be acting on behalf of a group when it comes to these groups themselves like isis it feels very much like a cult and i think most people would probably kind of get that younger people specifically young men are brainwashed indoctrinated and convinced by much older men who give them a motive to do this so how do you view mental health between those younger men and the older men my own experience having spent about a year with my nose in court documents and things like that is I'm not sure how you described it is quite what I think the reality is. I tend to find that almost everyone, even the people that have some kind of mental health issue, are typically very active participants. And again, quite a lot of the time, if you mm -hmm. read the media or you, you listen to policymakers, they talk about it in that kind of relationship, that there is someone that is vulnerable and there is someone that is radicalizing them or brainwashing them or, or things like that. And I tend to find that's not really the case. I tend to find that it is a very active, the person becoming radicalized is usually a very mm -hmm. active participant and they are going out seeking engagement in this kind of situation right, rather than okay. being preyed upon. I think that's sometimes a bit of a, an issue with how we think about this is it's perhaps a slightly easier, it kind of sits better with us to think, oh, there are these fundamentally good people, but they are being manipulated in some kind of a way. But actually, human beings are typically not that passive. I mean, unless we're talking about people with real, really severe learning difficulties and, and mental health stuff. And there are some cases that speak to that. But actually, in actual fact, when mm -hmm. it comes to radicalization... But it's it not the main it's, narrative, okay. No, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. it tends to really be people quite actively seeking this kind of stuff out. Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. That's good to know. And then when it comes to other groups then, so these could be specifically terrorist or they could be groups with maybe uh, terrorist tendencies or commit terrorist acts. So for example, you know, you look at Mexican cartels like the Sinaloa, La Familia, who are basically kind of like militias now. They're very well funded. They're extremely well armed. How do you look at, or have you done any work at looking at their recruitment tactics or groups like the Boogaloo Boys who have committed quite extreme acts, but maybe are not as much in the main public consciousness when it comes to these sort of groups? Yeah, I guess the, the substantial difference is 
ideology. So Mexican cartels is, is less about ideology and it's more about, you know, specific, usually financial gain. However, I think where other people have drawn links between gangs and other kinds of drug cartels and things like that is the recruitment does tend to mirror terrorism and extremism in that they usually are aiming to offer the person that they are trying to recruit some level of personal significance in what they're doing. That seems to be a relatively robust way of trying to sell the idea of joining a group or a movement. It seems that that probably holds both in the case of these ideological groups like terrorist organisations and extremist movements, as well as other organisations too. So there is perhaps something of a mirroring there, but for the non-ideological groups, there is, by its own definition, going to be less ideology as part of it. And as a final question, before we move on to incels, Warren Farrell talks about, in his book, The Boy Crisis, the prevalence of men and boys who end up in gangs or potentially becoming terrorists who have no fathers or absent fathers. How much of that have you found to be a factor in your work when you've analysed the demographics or the population makeup of these men? Mm, It's an interesting question. So again, going back to my PhD research and database of, again, about 200 terrorists, It wasn't a specific research question, but something I kind of anecdotally noticed and analysing the data is that a large, larger number of people had been through care, been through the care system, which would imply lack of any Mm. parent. Now, obviously, there's a question of causation because it's difficult to know whether it is the lack of the male influence or the lack of father influence or whether it's the trauma that's sustained by whatever got them through the care system or the abuse that they picked up through the care system as well. So there's a lot of kind of different inputs there, but I definitely kind of have noticed that there is quite a larger number of people in care than you would expect, given that that's a relatively low base rate. I'm learning a lot here. I thought I'd learn a little bit, but I'm learning a lot. Let's move on to incels now, mate, and your research, because some on one side of this debate would liken incels perhaps to at its most extreme terrorists because of a couple of examples they would point to largely Elliot Rodger in the US and Jake Davison in the UK. Tell me about the research you've done and should they be classified in the same category as Atom Waffen Division or Boko Haram? <laughs> well, I think the first thing to say is it is worthwhile to understand the difference between a terrorist act and an extremist group or movement. And in terms of the former, there are very, very, very few incidents of incel-related violence that could be somewhat described as terrorism. Jake Davison is a kind of an interesting case because in the UK, it obviously came to really high public prominence. And then on further inspection, the security services have basically said, no, this doesn't really resemble a case of terrorism because of a lack of clear ideological motive. Now, that very quickly becomes a political question because people that feel that there is a double standard when it comes to labelling all Muslims as terrorists and things like that feel that it is kind of perhaps a deliberate attempt to downplay white male violence. And I think it's quite clear that there has been a demonstrable bias in talking about terrorism when it comes to different races. And there's also people that think that because it's violence which is primarily directed towards women that this is not taking misogyny seriously and I think it's probably also fair to say that in society this is an issue we don't take as seriously however I don't think the solution to those things is to incorrectly label 
non-terrorism as terrorism, I think the correct solution to that is to just be a bit more robust about how we talk and deal with issues like misogyny and and mm. bias when it comes to religion. But I, th- yeah. I think going back to the main question, so, so there are very few incidents of incel terrorism, Elliot Roger being, I think, quite a clear example, and we can sort of argue the toss about, about some of the others, but we can count on one hand, basically. However, I don't think there's any doubt that anyone that spends any time on the incel forums realise that it can be an extremely toxic and extreme place in terms of the sentiments. That of course. Sent- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one's denying that. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, th- I think because often as a society, sometimes we lump terrorism and just extreme narratives together and perhaps make the assumption that one will necessarily lead to the other, that then all of a sudden we're treating mm. something as a terrorist threat when the actual prevalence for violence as of what we know right now, is very low. I, of course, reserve the right to change that view if there's a slate of a larger number of incel attacks. But in terms of the data we're dealing with right now, the actual prevalence to violence is minuscule. It basically doesn't factor. Given that then, my perspective would be, obviously these are a group of extremely lonely, very sad, disturbed young men. Most of them, as you say, are completely nonviolent. A lot of them actually have a lot of trauma. They might have been sexually abused. They might have learning difficulties, a combination of of all of that. If you label a group like that as potential terrorists, when, as you say, the threat level is practically zero, despite, obviously, the misogyny that goes on there, (laughs) does that actually potentially increase the risk because you're alienating them further? Very plausibly. So, you know, a long-standing criminological theory is called labelling theory. And if you basically paint someone to be a certain thing, it increases their perception that they are that thing. I think on a more practical level as well, given that we are in a world in which we are starting to remove a lot more content from the internet. So we've got a bill that will come through, depending on the political situation this year, the online safety bill, as well as in the EU, there's a whole host of laws, which basically compel platforms to take content down a lot quicker. If we are calling this terrorist content, then it will make the incentives much, much quicker to remove this content from the internet, which might mean that some of these forums are taken down, But we know very clearly that this content does not stay removed. What happens is it tends to move to uh, usually at this point when when we look at the far right or jihadist groups, these kind of decentralized platforms like Matrix and, and a range of other ones that it becomes extremely difficult to actually remove any content because decentralized platforms are very resilient to content takedown. Now, Mm, they'll find a way. Yeah, they definitely find a way. But you have this issue that you've taken them away from a place where there is potentially some level of content moderation, although that would depend on which Intel forum you're talking about, because obviously some of them have very little content moderation as it stands at the moment. So but the point is, it might be a lot more difficult, say, for example, if there was a concern about security for law enforcement to find and just keep tabs and make sure things are you know, not about to bubble over into something really bad. So I think there might be this labelling issue that makes people more likely to um, become violent. But on the same time, there's probably more of a practical issue that if you treat them as terrorists and give them the same level of content removal that we give most terrorists and extremist groups, then that can have some quite practical knock-on effects as well. One thing you said very interesting to me off air, which is that whilst there might be a lot of misogyny on these forums power wise they're not getting into office anytime soon or anywhere near the levers of power does that reduce the level of risk further compared to someone like 
and I'm not saying that Viktor Orban is, I'm not putting a label on him at all, but I'm saying <laughs> someone like Viktor Orban in Hungary or the yeah. rise of, say, far-right parties in the Netherlands or even Italy. 100%. So I'm actually someone that thinks that terrorism is a bit of a red herring. It's bad, we should stop it, we should dedicate resources to stopping it. The real danger is when extremism is not in the hands of a few powerless people that are committing terrible atrocities, but is when it gets into the halls of power. And that's when you start to see things like genocide, things like wars of aggression that are increased deaths by a factor of 10. And the real I mean, reason... R- Russia think, and Ukraine is the prime example here. A, a very good example, yeah. And, 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 and don't be fooled in thinking that that is not ideological. That is about Putin and what he considers to be Russia. And, you know, it is incredibly ideological there. So I think we... <laughs> The thing that I think is most concerning about the rise of the far right is its proximity to political power. And that we have seen in a range of countries, Brazil, Hungary, the United States of America, these kinds of attitudes and behaviours to go with them, that is extremely damaging and, and can absolutely and has led towards a specific violence and breakdown of democracy and a range of other things too. So it's interesting because with the jihadist threat, There was obviously a very big security threat in terms of terrorist attacks, but there was never any chance of them getting close to power in the West, at least. Whereas... um, Yeah, Afghanistan excluding. (laughs) Yeah, well, obviously that's more um, taking over the country rather than winning an election. But anyway, that's that. But the far right represents a very distinct political threat because of its proximity to power. Now, if we take back incels, there is, again, this is not a group that is or a movement that is in any danger of having any kind of political power anytime soon. Before we move on to research well-being in counterterrorism, which is our next topic, mate, you said to me off air, incels are considerably more of a threat to themselves than others. So unpack that for me from a mental health perspective and what evidence have you got for me? Yeah, so if we... um, I don't want to downplay the fact that, you know, terrorist attacks have happened. And I think more importantly as well, Misogyny and violence against women in society is a big issue. Uh, So we we shouldn't downplay that. But I think there are people trying Mm -hmm. to draw a link between this very specific group and the wider problem of misogyny. And part of the reason for that is I think one only needs to read the kind of terrible, toxic things that they're posting on their forums before you think, oh, women should be terrified of of this kind of thing. Whereas actually, I think that as a criminologist, women should be more terrified by men that they actually know rather than uh, people posting on their forums. But that's another matter. What we can see when we start to look at research into this is that incels are incredibly likely to also suffer from a a range of mental health issues, but particularly depression. And when quizzed on suicide attempts, there's a very high prevalence of having thought about committing suicide or have actually taken steps to, to do that. So if this were any other group who who weren't posting these terrible, toxic things online, we would consider it a a space for mental health interventions rather than in a counterterrorism frame. Admittedly, the sorts of terrible things that they're posting on, on, on these platforms and the toxic things they're posting on these platforms don't help their cause for this, but... I think clearly when you when you look at some of the surveys, so uh, Sofia Moskalenko and some colleagues that did a survey, we're actually just finishing a survey, which we're going to be closing data collection on too, which is also a quiz, these kind of things. What we can see is a very high, uh, high prevalence of, of thinking about and, and acting on suicidal thoughts. 
The final part of this topic we're going to discuss, mate, before we reflect on your academic journey, and it's something I've discussed a lot with conflict journalists, actually, is the exposure to extreme and harrowing content that people like yourself have to watch or read because of the work you do. Now, we're going to discuss your personal experience of this later in the pod, but just tell me how you've seen it affect your colleagues' well-being. Yeah, so earlier this year, we published a report in which we had conducted interviews with 39 people that work in our field. This is people that study both the far right and jihadism, as as well as incels as well. And this is generally people that are researching academically or within a kind of a think tank environment, people that are looking at this kind of content all day. And if you cast your mind back into about 10 years ago, and a lot of these terrible ISIS beheading videos or setting people on fire or throwing people off buildings and things like that. This is people that spent a really long time engaging with this kind of content. And what we found was that our 39 participants reported a whole host of of harms, including PTSD symptoms, including nightmares, including just general kind of sleep-related issues, feeling uneasy in crowded areas. So that was just the psychological harms as well. That was just the psychological harms. But as well as that, it included a range of physical harms because we're dealing with people that aren't usually very happy that we're looking into this kind of field. So about a quarter of the people we spoke to had had some kind of death threats. One participant even was included in jihadist propaganda because he had conducted an analysis of their propaganda and they had kind of almost written a, a right to reply of it. In the most extreme cases, someone had had to uh, leave the country they were in and you know, have their family kind of taken into somewhere, into police protection briefly and, and things like that. And then all the way down to things like doxing and kind of spamming of, of institutional emails and, and, and things like that. So the 39 people that we spoke to definitely reported that there were both mental and physical health issues that, that, that came uh, as a part of our job. Did anything surprise you about that research? It's interesting. So almost everyone said, and perhaps this is a self-selecting sample, but almost everyone said, I still think it's worth it to do the research that I do, which I think is quite important. And perhaps is not just Mm. a, a comment for reflection, but perhaps is also a coping mechanism as well. It is much easier to watch another beheading video if you do get a feeling that what you are doing is useful and it is providing some kind of knowledge which is going to help to, in some way, build the base of knowledge which helps to counter that threat or helps other people not to be, uh, you know, helps you craft a response message which stops people from being um, drawn into these kinds of things. So, So although people did highlight a range of problems, it was generally with the view that they were happy that they were contributing and that was helping them. With that said, a very large number of people also said that they did wish that they had been warned in advance. A lot of people like myself just sort of went into it headfirst and just started watching things and looking at stuff. And most people wish that they had a kind of a senior colleague that had just said, oh, do watch yourself with that. Perhaps coming up with a list of tips where one of the things we reported was what people did to get over these things. And there's a whole host of tips like don't do it in the nighttime just before bed try and minimise the screen. If you don't need the sound on, don't have the sound on, you know, things things like that. But a lot of people like myself just sort of went into it head first without really thinking, you know, without really having anyone that warned them. And a lot of people kind of wish that they did have that voice, which which in a way was kind of the, the underlying logic for the report we did. 
I spoke to a previous guest, Wonder Woman, called Claire Johnson, mate, who worked on the Yorkshire Moors murders way back in the 1960s. And she told me that the content was so harrowing, obviously, that they had caseworkers constantly rotated to avoid them becoming too scarred to continue. Now, obviously, that was a very long time ago. But what policies would you like to see implemented in this field of work to ensure that your colleagues and even yourself don't go through, you know, any sort of secondhand trauma, essentially? Yeah. So one of the things we did as part of this research was we had a workshop with people that weren't researchers in our field, but kind of adjacent fields that also had very difficult content. So we had someone that did uh, child sexual exploitation research. We had people from Europol and I think the Met Police as well. And they spoke a little bit about what their institutions did for them. And they had mental health check-ins available and basically as much counselling as they wanted. They had ability to step away from a project without suffering kind of... um, penalty is the wrong word but it it would not adversely affect their career if they needed to switch departments or something like that now academia is a bit different because a there's not to put it lightly there's not the money for that but a policy that I have kind of taken now I'm at the stage of my career where I'm writing bids is if it will involve looking at this kind of content then I will try to write in the counselling supports into the bid so there's there's a bit more money for um, a bit of money for that particularly when there's more junior colleagues I think something else I do is I just try and have informal check-ins if I'm a team leader as well and there's potentially a PhD researcher that's that's part of the team. It might just be at the end of the day, you go for a cup of tea or you have a biscuit and you just have a little bit of a chat just so this person has some way of just kind of unloading the, the sorts of things that, that they've said. Not everyone goes for it, but it at least offers the check-in uh, to do it and understanding that it is an environment in which they can, they can do it. University ethics committees. They can certainly be a barrier when it comes to conducting any kind of risky research, often because they are very concerned with their own reputation. So in terms of a policy change that I would like to see, it's just a general better understanding or a lane of applications for people that are conducting this kind of risky research, because it it feels that the incentives are for the university to say, oh, someone is putting in their ethics application that there may be some psychological harms that are created from this research therefore we're going to reject it because we don't want to face that risk and then you run the risk of all research into terrorism child sexual exploitation hateful speech uh, you know anything online that is in some way deviant suicide content as well that runs the risk of not being researched academically which i think would be a real problem and it would really be a kind of lead to a real gap in our knowledge let's reflect on your academic journey now mate so firstly, what has been your proudest achievement on it so far? Ooh, um, that's a good question. I think finishing the PhD felt pretty pretty good at the time. It's something that only PhD students will know, but you, you have three plus years of PhD guilt that you're not getting it done. You're not finally getting the thing over the line. So when you finally pass your PhD defence and you don't have to worry about it anymore, that is a pretty incredible feeling. And as a final question, what has this academic journey taught you about yourself? Ooh, um that's a good question. I, again, going back to the PhD side of it, one of the things I always tell prospective students is a PhD is not really a measure of any kind of intelligence, but it is a measure of resilience and perseverance. It's again, it's one big project that you do for three, sometimes four years, and well, potentially longer if it's part time, and you're, you're not doing that much else at the same time. There are very few other jobs that a PhD, sorry, you're doing a project basically on your own, a project management, you are the manager, 
and you're doing it on your own for that period of time. I'm really struggling to think of any. And it's not about how smart you are. It's some, I think in a large part about your ability to get out of bed the next day and just give it a good slog and just getting words on paper or getting your data collection done or, or, or things like that. So I, th I think what I learned was I was probably more resilient and had greater perseverance than I thought I did at the start. We've talked about Joe the academic, Dr. Joe Whitaker. Let's go deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So I ask all my special guests on this topic, this question first, taking back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Joe we meet here? Um, to be completely honest with you, I've always been quite fortunate when it comes to anything that you could really talk about as a kind of disorder or anything like that. I've, I've always been very fortunate on, on that front. I think probably my own mental health journey is probably better understood. And this is this is probably an awful British thing to say, but I think the way I was raised was not to be very emotionally outgoing and not being able to communicate my emotions in a particularly efficient way. And I think going from a teenager and a man in his early 20s as not really doing that a lot and seeing it kind of torpedo friendships, relationships and things like that. And really learning as you get a bit older, that even if it's something that's not comfortable because, because of the way, you know, our British stiff upper lip and things like that, just learning to be a little bit more emotionally outgoing as well. And I've definitely found that with that comes, you know, really huge um, emotional weight goes off. So it's, it's something that's definitely improved my life dramatically. We spoke about it earlier in the pod, so we're going to talk about it now, which is your own personal perspective and how this vicarious trauma in counterterrorism research affected you, mate. So how did it affect your personal mental health? And as you said before, how did this stiff upper lip approach <laughs> end up <laughs> impacting it? Yeah, with this, so I've, obviously I've done research on the far right, I've done research on jihadists and I've done research on, on incels. And it, it is worth talking about them slightly differently because jihadists content is by far and away the most violent. So when, for example, I was doing my PhD mm. and I was looking at beheading videos and, and people getting set on fire and things like that, there is a certain amount of just bracing yourself for things like that. And it would be completely wrong to say it doesn't affect you. I'm now at a stage in my career where I think I probably don't ever need to watch things like that again. But there are physical symptoms to watching things that gruesome, you know, teeth clenching and stress levels affect your sleep and, and things like that. But in a weird way, with that, I knew what I was getting in for when I started to do a PhD on ISIS. I knew they were gruesome and I knew when I was going to watch this kind of content that it would be bad. And you kind of, you can emotionally brace yourself a little bit. What in a weird way I found more problematic was doing research on the far right, which was less violent in nature, but it was talking about using narratives about immigrants, about women, about Jewish people and things like that, which you see in your day-to-day -day life, even if it's not as extreme. And that actually, seeing that and drawing that connection from A to B is quite distressing, I think. So when I've been through stages of coding data and, and, and collecting data, and you, you're just, you're looking at this kind of really insidious, horrible narratives, which are blaming, that in a weird way is more emotionally distressing. And particularly as a, you know, as a, as a white British guy, mm. makes you question your place in all of it and things like that. And conversations you've had with, friends and family members and, and, and things like that and it's in a weird way I, I would probably say that distressed me more than watching these awful beheading videos and how did that distress manifest itself in the symptoms that you exhibited 
Well, I think beginning by doing the first thing I mentioned before, which is immediately going into my shell and not really wanting to talk about it at all. And then there are some healthier ways of dealing with it. So I mean, the good thing about being in a university environment is particularly that when there's other people that research this kind of thing, is you can talk to them about it and, and see where they're at uh, and, and kind of get that perspective and, and talk about it. And then there's, I'm not sure how I feel about this, but certainly something that I have developed as a way of dealing with both the really gruesome stuff and kind of the insidious stuff is just by developing a really, really dark black sense of humour. You have to be very careful about when and where you use it, but <laughs> being able to... Uh, being yeah, able to yeah, I've got that for mental health, mate, as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I do make jokes. You have to be very careful you don't do it when you're, for example, teaching and, you know, you've got students that <laughs> might not understand that things are jokes and, and, and things like that. But in our team at Swansea University, uh, it, it is very common for there to be uh, just kind of... Uh, just kind of very off-colour jokes that kind of help you get through the day a little bit, let you realise that... Although the things that you're researching are very serious, it's just a bit of a coping mechanism that just helps you put it into perspective, give you a little bit of distance from it. I have heard people say that it's not the most healthy thing, but it is a, it is a thing and it, it's, it's certainly better than mm. stewing it all over it. Looking back on it now, what coping mechanisms do you have in place if you do have to view this content again? And what do you hope that your colleagues might do if they do go through this or, or are experiencing this? Yeah, so I, th I think it's, um, again, and this, this is not something that every researcher has, is that we have about two dozen researchers at Swansea University that do this kind of thing. So it would be very easy for me to, we, for example, we have monthly research seminars, so I could very easily ask to have an hour and I could talk about my experience researching these things and we could all have a kind of a conversation about things like that. That's certainly something we've done before. So other researchers who might be the only person doing something on online deviant behavior in their whole university don't necessarily have that value but or have that option so i do at least have the ability to be part of a wider community that i can easily access as part of it and then i think beyond that there's a lot of those kind of tips that i was talking about before that can mitigate it so for mm. example if you're watching an execution video you might find that if you were conducting an analysis on it you actually don't need to watch the actual violence itself. It might be the framing up until the moment in which someone's throat is slit or they're set on fire or something like that. And then you don't actually need to watch it. Again, you can minimise the screen, you can watch it in black and white, you can turn the sound right down if that's not necessary to the kind of analysis that you're doing. So lots of the options like that. And, and again, not having healthy working hours as well, because this isn't something you want to be doing in the hours before bed. I think one of our participants said that they made sure that they, A, they were working nine to five and then 4.30 till five, they had to do something happy. So they had to really finish the nasty stuff by 4.30 and then they would um, do something that just gave them a bit of joy for the last half hour of the working day, just so that when they left work, it wasn't with this, these like terrible thoughts. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now, mate. So A, what has it taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to the Joe who was really struggling with viewing that extreme content, maybe not sleeping as well, feeling anxious and experiencing that general vicarious trauma. What would you say to him knowing what you do now? So in terms of what I think I've learned, again, it's probably a similar question to, to the PhD one in that I'm probably more resilient than I thought I was when it would come to these kind of things. But at the same time, and this probably feeds into the second question as well, really question what it is you have to, have to, have to, have to look at and have to watch. 
I took the view, and it's a bit difficult when you're starting a PhD, that because I was looking at how terrorists were acting, it was useful for me, for what I was doing, to look at a lot of the propaganda. And I think that's pretty defensible. But I would say, did you actually have to watch someone being satellite or someone being thrown from a building? How much knowledge did that actually give you compared to if I'd stopped it just before the violence had started? So it's being more selective and being slightly smarter about what it is you look at and then thinking about what actually the benefits you're getting from it are. And I think, to be honest, the stage I'm at now is, uh, admittedly, ISIS is mostly in the rearview mirror, but if there was another group that was putting out these kind of stuff, so I would probably question just how much I needed to watch these kind of things. And I think there's potentially, if I was going to be quite critical of myself, I'd say there's possibly a little bit of bravado at the time of kind of, oh, I can take it, I can watch these kinds of things. Whereas in reality, probably didn't need to watch as much as I did. Our final topic of conversation, Joe, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and quick fire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? Right now, I think it's better than it's really ever been. Really, really loving life and just found a really good balance of work and family and uh, things like that. Excellent. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Oh, probably far later than it should have been. I think it was probably probably mid-twenties in which it, in which it really became, dawned on me that this was something that, A, it was affecting the way I acted and, and things like that, but also it was something that I could actively do something about as well. And can you tell me about the first ever conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders or something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? You know what? I actually, I, I can't pinpoint a specific conversation. So it clearly must have been something that came in, in small dribs and drabs. And then there, there must have just been a dawning moment at, at my end that, yeah, can't really act uh, yeah, in the same closed off way that I had been for the last 20 or so years before. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Um, there are certain topics of conversation that I'm uh, always going to be a bit difficult for me. I've lost a couple of friends to suicide. So I think whenever that becomes a topic, I uh, struggle. I think that, that, that very clearly brings out some difficulties. Apart mm. from that, I think as well, if part of the nature of being an, uh, a teaching academic as well as a research one is that you've got two incredibly stressful, tightly packed kind of 10 or so week semesters, at which point I feel my stress levels going up and my uh, my mental health is very clearly uh, uh, exacerbated. It's a lot less easy for the people around me during that time. And conversely, then, what positive tools and methods do you use in your life to improve your mental health and help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked? And maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Uh, I think I'm always very hesitant to say this because I'm aware that some people use it as if it's a cure, but I've generally find staying active and, and having good physical health does help me just from falling into a, a trap of not doing anything and life just being about getting up, going to work and then collapsing on the sofa at the end of the day. So, But, but I realise that that is an incredibly annoying piece of advice for a lot of other people who have clinical depression and they're just trying <laughs> to get up on the sofa. But that is something mm. that I find does work for me. And what is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. If you can't think of a book, 
a podcast, a play, TV show, any piece of popular culture? So this is going to be quite off-piste, but this is going to take you back to when I was a poker player. And generally, poker books are terrible. Mm-hmm. They suck. But there was one that I read, and it was called Elements of Poker by Tommy Angelo. And it didn't have any advice about how to play poker, basically. But what it was, was it was something that tried to teach you the mental tricks to not be too swayed by the very vast and high variance ups and downs of being a professional poker player. And to be honest, I think he fundamentally draws it from kind of a very stoic attitude. And I mean, stoic in the philosophical sense, as in of just not being Mm -hmm. too concerned about dealing with the things that you can't control. Swings are a huge part of poker. You can't control the good ones. You can't control the bad ones. So just trying to keep yourself at a relatively stable level in between. And while I use that for poker in my uh, in my early 20s, it's certainly something which I, I find it helps to keep me grounded now in my 30s that I can question myself and say, do I have control over the thing that's upsetting me? And some slash most of the time, that knowledge that I don't have control over it does help to put my mind at ease a little bit. Whereas um, I think before it's very easy to get caught up in the emotional high highs and the low lows and your life ends up like a bit of a roller coaster. And if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? I think, um, yeah, just I, I t- take you back to the point about just learning to kind of open up emotionally about it. So it's about just trying to not bottle things up and, and being able to discuss your feelings with your with your friends and loved ones. And as a final question, this is a broad one, Joe. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about the mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? Yeah, I think that's an interesting one. I think it's, um, first of all, it's always going to help when there are, in popular media, there are more examples of men being open about their emotions rather than, you know, there's obviously a painted view of, you know, a macho man who doesn't need to talk about these kinds of things. And for some people, I guess that's fair enough. But having some kind of representation of these sorts of things, to be completely honest, I've sometimes found both with myself, if I'm in a situation where I'm, something's not brilliant, but I don't really want to talk about it, just having friends there just to do stupid guy stuff and just watch the football <laughs> have it there you know that helps an incredible amount and even if it's not the sort of person that you have a relationship where you can really go really deep into your mental health with just yeah having someone there having someone that you can just be stupid with because without painting us all with the same brush we are oftentimes really stupid in a good way creatures you know laughing at really <laughs> silly things and, and just just giving yourself a bit of an escape from that bad thing that you don't really want to be thinking about right now. So so I guess to summarise that, it's on one hand, having more representations of men actually opening up about these kinds of things. And then on the other, having more opportunities to do nothing but take your mind off whatever bad thing exists. I think those two things together would probably be a real help. That's a great way to end it. Dr. Joe Whittaker, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In Pod. A big thank you to Dr. Joe Whitaker for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him. I'll, of course, put Joe's social media links and where you can find out more about his research in counterterrorism in the show notes if you want to. As always, I sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. 
Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Spread the word about Vent and the podcast. If you're feeling generous, please, please write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. I haven't had one in absolutely ages, so that would always be nice. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider also supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt or buy a ticket to the Just Checking In podcast live show. That's Friday, September 29th, 2023 at Eton Manor Rugby Club. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.